Our reading this morning comes from 1 Timothy 1, verse 8 to 11. So that's the continuation from where we left off last week. And we're going to spend the next couple of weeks working our way through Timothy. Uh, we're going to spend a couple of weeks in 1 Timothy 1 and then 1 Timothy 3 later, uh, in fact, next month. And if you're thinking, well, where's 2? Well, we did 2 already. So 1 Timothy 2, if you missed it, we'll have to try and catch you up, I suppose. But um, this morning, I just wanted to read this passage for us. So don't worry if you've not got your reading glasses with you or if you're struggling to find it. I'll say it one more time just to help you out. 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 11. Uh, And in 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 11, it says, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Well, I think it's really important that when we preach, we encourage, we edify, we lift up, and we focus on Jesus. You might be thinking, well, I'm not sure how you're going to do that with this particular passage. But honestly, I think it's there. So let me try and find Jesus with you this morning. In fact, Spurgeon said, every sermon is a race to the cross. And if you can't find Jesus and Christ crucified, you probably shouldn't bother preaching. That's my paraphrase. He did say some wonderful things, and some of them I probably wouldn't repeat from a pulpit. (laughs) But, uh, you know, let me help us this morning. First, I want to say that here's a sermon title for you. I know some of us like to take notes. I know others of us are still working on that, and I don't want to say, well, here's a a message on the law and then leave you feeling like you've got to take notes. That wouldn't be my purpose at all this morning. But here's a sermon title, and that is, The Law is Good. The Law is Good. And just straight out of the gate, I want to acknowledge that there's a bit of a false dichotomy in the modern church. We seem to have fallen into a little bit of a a thinking that perhaps the law isn't good. In fact, we spend so much time trying to help people know and focus on Jesus, I think sometimes we think that we're being terribly loving by not pointing them to what the law says. You see, the the Bible is an amazing book. And it's amazing for a couple of reasons. First of all, it isn't like a lawyer's textbook. It isn't. It isn't case law. Case after case after case after case. But instead, it's a collection of stories. I don't know about you, but hearing stories, I find to be a really engaging way to learn. Ever since I was a little boy, I used to find that if someone told me a story, I could remember almost every detail of the story 
I find that's true today as well. I can remember almost every detail of a story. But if you ask me to memorize something, for instance, even something as simple as names, I find names terribly difficult. I don't know about you. Does anyone ever struggle with a name? But if you hear the story that goes with the name, suddenly you're like, oh yeah, that's such and such. (laughs) And so I think it's brilliant that we've been given this collection of stories. But this collection of stories that we've been given has some things that it's talking about. This collection of stories, collection of letters, collection of lists and names, it's all sorts of a mismatch mismatch of all sorts of different writing styles. But God makes it really clear what is good and what is not. And you know, if we're going to say we're going to live for Jesus, then we're saying I'm signing up to something. I'm going to do it a certain way. And you see, when we think that we're being terribly loving and we stop telling people the truth, when we think that we want to show people grace, but we don't remember to give them the gift of the word of God, or when we think, well, I want to be loving to them and will love them into the kingdom of God, but we don't tell them what God says about what would be best for them, his best for them, the way he wants to love them by showing them his best. Then that gift of grace begins to feel hollow. You see, without the law of God, without God's holy instruction to us, the gift of grace in Jesus begins to become meaningless. You see, without recognizing the law of God, God's holy, royal standard, holy because he's God, royal because he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and a standard that he's laying down that he knew we couldn't meet and so gives us the gift of Jesus to cover all of our sins but still asks us to love him, to honor him, to serve him, to put him first in our lives. And if we want to have a relationship with God, it's not just about a holy moment and a special prayer. You know, the sinner's prayer isn't the be-all and the end-all of our Christian journey, our, our story. You see, our story is meant to conform to his story. And when we don't recognize the truth of God, God's truth, not ours, God's, defined by him, his gift of salvation to us, you know, it's all about God, isn't it? God's rescue plan, God's mission, the Missio Dei, to send Jesus into the world to save us. It's so easy to misperceive ourselves as the main character in the story. You see, without the law, who does Jesus die for? Well, he dies for this list of people. And actually, this list of people encompasses all of us. If you're thinking, well, I'm not that one, and I'm not that one, and I'm not that one, and I'm not that one, great. Well done. But one of these things that this passage is talking about will apply to you sooner or later. Because we are all 
when Jesus meets us sinners that are saved by grace. And the most amazing thing about God is that he meets us. He knows us. He sees us from his holy perspective outside of time and space, outside of human existence. And he knows all the mean, nasty things you think. You know, when someone cuts you up in traffic and you think something outrageous, when someone says something nasty to you, even if you think, actually, I wouldn't mind trying to justify how I feel about this person, but you still know that it isn't good. He knew all of those things, I believe, and still chose to save you. And if nothing else, if you hear nothing else this morning, hearing that God chose you, knowing all of your faults and failings, and offered you a better way, a way out of that way of living, into his abundance, his life, his journey, his family, his story, invited you to be a part of his family. Isn't that amazing? You see, without the law, without the law, we don't understand God's holy standard. And when we read a passage like, for God so loved the world in John 3.16, and we hear that God sends his son to die for us, what would be the point in Jesus dying? Without understanding the realities of this passage and passages like it, it's very easy to think that we're better than we are. The other thing I want to say to you is, actually, I've met some lovely non-Christian people. In fact, sometimes I meet non-Christian people and they're lovelier than all of you. (laughs) Slightly tongue-in-cheek this morning, but (laughs) I hope you take my meaning. Actually, there are people who are just as nice and nicer than us, but nice isn't what qualifies us to be a part of God's family. It's choosing to follow Jesus. And that isn't a choice that we make once, it's a choice that we make again and again and again. And oftentimes when we talk about this, I talk about a come to Jesus moment, the opportunity to choose to follow Jesus again. In fact, did you know that you have one of those every single morning when you wake up? His grace is new every morning, the word says. Every single day, you have a come to Jesus moment. And Jesus himself came to fulfill the law. So if you're thinking, well, I'm quite a nice person. Most of this doesn't apply to me. Maybe I only need 2% of grace. Well, the problem is the wages of sin is death. Even that much sin. Even that much sin. You might think that's a bit harsh. There are, there are worse people. This passage is talking about people who kill their fathers and mothers. That's pretty extreme. Most of us would agree that that's not the right thing to do. But the passage this morning is talking about all sorts of sins. I think one of the things that we struggle with in the evangelical church is choosing which sins are big ones and little ones, you know. Oh, that's a really bad sin. That one, not so much. You can get away with that. And actually, when we acknowledge that all sin separates us from God, and I think really that's what this passage is highlighting, 
We know that the law is good when one uses it properly, when you use it to search your own heart. You know, the psalmist says, search me, O Lord. Find where I'm going wrong so that I can live your way. I want to be prayer for us to pray. Search me, O Lord. You see, that doesn't really make sense if you're thinking about God as some sort of cosmic policeman and you're now signing up to some weird kind of stop and search mentality, does it? That doesn't sound like a good idea at all. Oh, hello, officer. Yes, here are all the naughty things I've ever done. I mean, but when we're saying that to God, God already knows. God already knows. I have a friend who's a policeman and they tell me that people end up breaking the law in some small way, most days, without even realising it. I don't mean a big whopper, like some terrible thing. I just mean that people make mistakes. And if, if in God's holy standard, even that much wrong is wrong, because God is perfect, then actually you can see why a punishment would come with the crime. And if a punishment comes with the crime, you can see why when we read the Bible and it says the wages of sin are death, even the little sins, even the little white lies, because they're lies, whatever they are, whatever the problem is, this is the amazing thing about Jesus. He chooses to die for us regardless. And the incredible thing is, no matter how big of a sinner you are, God chooses you and loves you and wants to make you a part of his family and calls you his child and says, be my child, be a child of God. Live my way according to my purposes because I've got an amazing plan for your life. And that's amazing, isn't it? Sometimes we have people and they roll through the churches, they do one of these big kind of tours where they go and speak at lots of different places. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Someone with an amazing testimony comes through and they, they share all about their, their journey, their journey to faith. And I've heard a few of these. I mean, I've heard of gangsters giving their lives to Jesus. I've heard of all sorts of incredible stories and sometimes you get the opportunity and there might be a a conference or an event and you get to go and hear this thing and I'm always just blown away by the grace of God because there's somebody telling us about how God's forgiven them and they know that that's true and actually sometimes the law of God is in tension with our culture and our society And that's when it's hard to be a Christian. I don't know if you've heard very much about the persecuted church. I think that's the extreme end of when there is tension between what we believe as Christians and the culture that people live in. I think actually here in the UK, by and large, as a once great Christian nation and now a kind of lapsed Christian nation, perhaps. That doesn't happen all too often for us. It happens occasionally. 
Some weeks, if you read Christian news, you might hear of a story of some occasion where there's been a bit of a culture clash. Sometimes people like to pretend that there isn't a culture clash, but of course, when we're saying that we're going to live up to heaven's standards, the kingdom of heaven, where obviously for it to be a kingdom, you've got to have a king. That person is going to decide the standard. If we don't, God does. But I would also say to us that the church isn't perfect in this either. And there are many times when we've gone wrong ourselves. I think sometimes the world struggles with the church because while we might find occasionally that the the church isn't well received in the culture, equally, the church has done things that haven't been helpful to the world. And we can't impose our beliefs on others. People have to choose to follow Jesus. We can't militantly recruit them. I don't think anyone in our church is planning on that. But um, let me be really clear. There have been times, if we look at some of the colonial models of mission, where missionaries were sent from parts of the world, like the UK and the US, and we would go to some little village somewhere and we would try and tell people how to live their lives because they've got to be British or American before they can be Christian. And it does rather remind me of the questions about whether or not you have to be a Jew before you can be a Christian. We've got this wrong. Other times I've heard people kind of bait and switch people. They say, come to our barbecue, and then they sneak a sermon in there. It's very unpleasant. (laughs) Other times the church is called to be salt and light, and we conform to the pattern of the world. We think, well, it isn't so very different from what we believe. We could just compromise on this bit and that bit and the other bit, and then we'll find it easier to tell people about Jesus. And we can't do that either. Because it's not our law that we're compromising on. It's God's. And so I think it's really important that we're transparent. We encourage people to seek prayer oftentimes, but do we let them know who they're praying to? We say, can I pray with you? Great, I'll pray for you. But sometimes we say, what would you like to pray? And we don't say, do you know who you're praying to? We just get so excited that they might be willing to say a prayer with us. (laughs) It's kind of a big deal, folks. They're praying to the king of heaven and earth. And I'm not saying that we throw up some wall there and we create a stumbling block to people, but do we know who it is we're inviting them to seek with us? I mean, we know that, right? We need to explain that. You see, lots of times people are happy to pray in a moment of crises for a thing or for a person, a situation, And I think them letting you pray for that, brilliant. There's no kind of ethical quandary there at all. But when they need to pray about something and they're saying, oh, how do I pray? And you say, oh, I can tell you how to pray. But you don't say, and this is who we're praying to. And God then answers their prayer. That should mean something for their life. And our opportunity is to explain who they've just prayed to. 
And so often I hear things around the church like, you know, at all times share Christ and if need be use words. And I think you always need to use words. It's not good enough just to be a lovely person. If being a lovely person led to people becoming Christians, then that would make sense. But we already discussed a moment ago that there are plenty of people who are nicer than us who aren't Christians. In fact, Jesus makes it really obvious when he says, go out into all the ends of the earth, proclaiming the good news. When we're given the Great Commission, when we're told these are who you go to, you go to the people near you, then a bit further, then a bit further, then a bit further, just keep telling people about Jesus. The word of God doesn't say be really nice to people and hope that they work it out. It says tell them. Tell them. It's not complicated. Shelby was sharing a moment ago a great challenge for us here in Ainsford, and I would extend this to Stone. In fact, I would extend this to all of the Christian church. The challenge to us is to be a bringer. Bring someone to church. Share your faith with somebody. Invite them to know Jesus and then help them get plugged into a place where that faith is going to grow. It's not good enough just to see somebody get saved because you will know them by your fruits, the word says. And how are they going to become fruitful unless they spend time in God's presence, learning about who he is, learning what it means to be fruitful. And yeah, there's some pruning that goes along with that, but I think the amazing thing about God is he's so tender with us. And we've just talked about how the church doesn't always get it right. Sometimes I think sometimes the church comes in with a bit of a slash and burn mentality when we're thinking about how we're going to help somebody sort their life out. And so for the challenge to us is to be just as tender with people as God is with us. Why would we be anything less than the way God has treated us? In fact, so many times I look around the church and I just feel a bit sad. Not our church, but the wider church, because we are so good at casting stones. And Jesus says, who among you is without sin? That can be the person that gets to throw the first stone. And he's talking about a specific story with a person who's been caught doing something they shouldn't have been. In fact, it's in the list in this passage. It's one of the things. And he starts writing in the dirt, and I've always wondered what he was writing in the dirt. Maybe he was writing names and sins. I don't know. <laughs> I think he probably wasn't. I think he's nicer than that. But Jesus says, whoever is without sin can cast the first stone. There's a really humorous kind of cartoon version of that that somebody's made. I saw a few years ago. And then out from heaven comes this stone and it whacks the person in the head. <laughs> and Jesus stops and goes, oh, come on. <laughs> and then you hear laughter from heaven. And that isn't what God does at all. I think sometimes people think of God like that. They think he's waiting just to kind of lob a stone at you. But do you know what God does? God sends something down from heaven and it's not a stone to hit you in the head. It's Jesus to pick you up off the ground. It's really easy to be less compassionate than Jesus. And I think that's the challenge to us. We see this list 
And we know that this is good news, that the law is good news if we use it properly. If we're examining our own hearts, if we're encouraging one another in good things, if we're looking around and we're saying, you know, can I help you with that? You seem like you're struggling. And gently encouraging one another. The word of God says we shouldn't all rush to do that. There are some people that are specially chosen to do that. And that when they do it, they should do it having examined their own hearts. In fact, there's a whole passage about how to do that that we don't have time for this morning. But the good news is good when we use the law properly. And we know that the law is there to point the unrighteous back to God's perfect standard. It's not there to beat one another up with. It always amuses me when people talk about Bible bashers, because whenever that would come up and I was in children's church as a, a young kid, one of my friends would always whack me with his Bible from behind, and then I'd turn around and I'd whack him back. And you'd think, nope, this is exactly the opposite of what we're meant to be doing. But I think it's really important that we're building a church that isn't whacking one another with our Bibles. And I'm not speaking to anyone in particular because I think we all agree about this. But it's good to re-emphasize that, isn't it? Because what we want to be expounding on this morning is sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. These are the core things that we believe. We believe that Jesus is good. He's good news. When we hear about Jesus, when we see the way he ministers, we see the gold standard for us as believers. When we read a passage like this, we don't feel condemned by all the list of things, knowing that one of these things sooner or later will, is going to trip us up. But instead, we see this list and we know that this is who needs instruction on God's perfect plan. God's way for us to live. Because we need to keep conforming to the word, not to the world. We need to keep conforming to the word and not to the world. In fact, I think it's really important that we remember that spirit and truth go hand in hand with one another. You see, so often people talk about the Holy Spirit, the counsellor coming into our lives as though this is some motherly type figure who's going to put an arm around you and give you a big mug of tea and tell you everything's going to be okay. And actually, I believe one of the things that the Spirit does in our lives is the Spirit works to convict us of sin. And there's a big difference between conviction and condemnation because condemnation is what the enemy does. When you start hearing you're not good enough, you won't ever be good enough and you have disqualified yourself from the love of God, whether it's as overt as that or whether it's just a fear playing on your mind. There's a big difference between the Holy Spirit and the spirit of the world. And each one of us needs to get comfortable with the conviction of the Holy Spirit calling us to God's best. Because when we are called into God's best, not my will, but yours, 
Heavenly Father. That's what we need to learn to pray. When we stop conforming to the world around us, we want to be contextual to the world around us. And what I mean by that is we want to engage with the world because we are in it, but we're not of it. Have you ever heard that said in church? To be in the world, but not of the world. And I'm wrapping up here. You see, we receive grace from God on his terms, not ours. And sometimes when the church gets that muddled up, we think that we're going to be more gracious than God. I mean, sometimes it's just silly, isn't it? (laughs) It's just obviously silly. We think that we're going to be more gracious than God. How could we ever be more gracious than God? Clearly, we can't be. Because if any of us want to try and be more gracious than God, and sometimes with all the best will in the world, we think, oh, well, you know, I'll I'll not tell this person about this thing that the Bible says because that might be relevant to them and an issue that they might need to work on. Awkward. Sometimes with good intentions, we think that we're going to be more loving than God, but are you willing to pay the price that God paid for their sins? I bet that you're not. Because it's death on a cross. You see, that is God's gift to us. And more than that, that Jesus lived a perfect life so that he could be a perfect sacrifice. Even if we were willing to go to a cross for somebody, we're not qualified to do that. We can't be Jesus. Only Jesus can. And so Jesus gets to tell us what his holy royal standard is. And our job as the church is to just point people back to that. We don't need to come in with a harsh word, a condemning word. What we want to do is we want to lift people up, saying, here are all of the things that we know aren't good. Here's God's perfect standard. And this law is going to be good news for you. Because when you recognize these things, when you start putting these things in the right order, when you stop doing what Judges 17.6 talks about, each person decided what was good in their own eyes, when you stop doing that, And instead, you seek God earnestly, not just in a moment of prayer saying, I'm ready to give my life to you. But you begin to really take that seriously. And you say, here I am, Lord, use me. Here I am, Lord, I want to live your way. When you start living God's best, God's holy standard, you find out that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. You see, when we decide to live by God's standard, when we say God's way is more important than my opinion, which isn't terribly popular to say in our current age, is it? When we say God's ways are higher, more perfect than my own, and actually when we think about God's ways, You know, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. We don't want to do everything that we could do. We want to do things God's way because we know that that's going to be counted as righteousness to us, which means that we're living God's way, the right way. And then we know that God blesses us. And we're not living God's way for God's blessing. Don't mishear me here. But God does bless us. He keeps blessing us. 
If any of you are saying, well, I don't really see any evidence of God's blessing in my life, well, tell me after church and we can have a chat because I can probably help you see some. (laughs) But we're living God's way because we want to be a part of God's family, because we want to show God our love, and because we want to walk more closely with him, we want to be filled by the Holy Spirit. We want to be fruitful in his kingdom. And we want to remember that there is nothing better than God's perfect plan for our lives. Because God, who is outside of time and space, all of history, has a plan and a purpose for our lives, and it ends with us going to heaven. It ends with us going to heaven. So our best is always yet to come. But actually... You've got this life here and now. And some people say, well, I just want to live my best life. <laughs> I want to do me. I'll, I'll get to God when my time comes. And that's not how this works. It's not how this works. Sometimes people say, well, I just want to have some fun. You know what? I've had more fun serving Jesus than anything that the world has to offer. It's more exhilarating to do it God's way. It's crazier to do it God's way than do it our way. You know, sometimes you meet people and they're just trudging through life and you think, you meet them and they ask you, is this all there is? And you think, well, without Jesus, probably it is. Or people think, well, if I live by my standards, then I'll do my best to be a good person, but I'm going to do this, that or the other. I think we really need to recognize what God's best looks like. Yes, it does mean that we're signing up to a standard. But God's plan, God's ways, God's design for your life and my life, I promise you, is full of far more excitement and enjoyment than anything you could develop by yourself. And so this morning as I wrap up, let me just finish with this last thought. Verse 11 talks about having just spoken of what it means to conform to good doctrine, sound doctrine, that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. You know, this whole thing about the gospel being entrusted to us. God trusts us with the most valuable message that he had to share with the world. He entrusts that to us. And he doesn't say, you can have a go. But when you get it wrong, I'm going to take it back. He gives us the most valuable thing, the thing that has cost more than anything in all of human history has ever cost, because it cost Jesus. God entrusts that, that message, that price, that person, the gift of Jesus to you and to me. 
And so for some of us, we need to get back into our quiet times because we've not been fully enjoying the gift of God. For others of us, we need to get back into the sanctuary. We want to be in the room. We need to start being more like church with one another again because that's God's gift to us. And still for some of us, you're going to find that the greatest joy in life comes when you share what God has given you. The hope of glory. And you see, hope doesn't disappoint. You can't give hope away and have less of it in the same way you can't give Jesus away and have less of him. And I think for many of us, the greatest encouragement comes by seeing others grow in their faith. But if we're not inviting people in, if we're not going out of our way, if we're not getting uncomfortable for the sake of seeing God's kingdom grow, And I know it's very comfortable and there's lots of reasons to be afraid. But if we're not putting ourselves out there, if we're not living life to the full for Jesus, and I'm not saying be an idiot, don't mishear me. This isn't one of those crazy things that you hear pastors say. This isn't going to turn into some anti-vax rant or some weird nonsense. (laughs) But church, we need to live our lives. There are people around you that need to hear about Jesus. There are people around you. And we live in a world where you can pick up a phone. You don't have to go and give them a hug and a sloppy wet kiss. In fact, it's probably still advisable that you don't. But there are people all around us who need to hear about Jesus. And whether we're engaging more fully with Christ ourselves this week, whether we have the opportunity to share, we need to remember that this is good news. And when we handle this news the right way, when we put God's best in front of people, we can truly say that the best is yet to come. I'm going to pray and close and throw it back to Shelby. Father God, we pray that you would bless us Father God, bless us as we seek to do your will. Help us to live according to your holy standard. Help us to point other people to you. Help us to trust in your goodness and grace, not our own. Help us to know that the best is yet to come isn't just a a catchphrase that you hear around church, but a promise because of who you are and who you're inviting us to be. We thank you that we're called into your family, into your service. We thank you for your gift of hope in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.